The following message is made available by First Baptist Church of Crosby, Texas. For more information or to help support our ministries, please visit us online at fbccrosby.org. Amen, church. Remain standing with me this morning in reverence of the reading of the Holy Word of God. This morning we'll be reading Romans chapter 15, verses 8 to 13. First Baptist Church of Crosby, pray the word of the Lord. For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, therefore I will praise you amongst the Gentiles and sing to your name. And again it is said, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit, you may abound in hope. And all God's people said, you may be seated. Pray with me again. Father, in days of old, the sound of your voice caused men to tremble and quake. Because by your word, Father, there is there's power power to bring forth worlds, to chase away darkness, to create life. There's power in your word. So we're asking you to speak this morning powerfully through your word. To give us ears to hear it and hearts to believe it. We're asking you to work both sides of the transaction here, Father. The speaking, the hearing, the understanding, all of it. It's a gift from you, and so we need you now as much as ever to come and do your work so we can hear your word and be changed, strengthened, and encouraged for all that lie ahead. Father, again, we love you and we trust you. You are trustworthy. We trust you. And we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Go ahead and return to your feet, please. We continue working our way through Paul's letter to the Ephesians. We're in chapter 2. 
I tried to only read one verse last week. It doesn't work for me. So we're going to read all the way verse 11 through 22. This is the holy, inerrant, infallible, sufficient, authoritative word of God. Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision that is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace that he might reconcile us both to God in one body through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles, and the prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So if you were to ask me to sum up for you what the Apostle Paul is saying here in um, this section of his letter to the Ephesians, in short, it's that God is building a singular people. God is reconciling rebels and sinners to himself as one, as one body, as one new person, as one household. In order to do this, he is breaking down the dividing wall of hostility, the, the partition of enmity that exists between Jews and Gentiles. Now, standing on this side of the cross, this is exactly the kind of thing that we would take for granted. But we must remember that Paul will go on to say in Ephesians 3.9 that this is a mystery hidden for the ages in God. In Ephesians 1.9 he says that this was the mystery of his will to unite all things in Christ, things in heaven, and things on earth. It was a mystery. And now it's revealed. The thing that God is showing forth, boasting in his own work as he makes clear to those on on the earth and in heaven, look at this thing I have done in reconciling men to each other and to me. And one new people, one body, one household. These men who were once enemies, who were once at odds, it couldn't be any more further separated from each other. Now they sit together at one table, sharing one meal, worshiping one God, all in one spirit. We need to realize that what we enjoy in this place right now, this communion and fellowship and unity that I so often point your heart towards, you need to recognize that it took the power of God to create this. It took the wisdom of God, the grace of God, the mercy of God, the love of God, the persistence of God, and the life of God's own Son to create this thing that we so often now take for granted. The Apostle Paul calls us twice in this portion of the letter to remember. Remember, you who once were far off. Spent our time together last week considering verse 11, 
that we were the Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Circumcision, the initiatory rite, the sign of the old covenant. You had no place amongst God's people. You could not sit down at the Passover table. You would have been cast far away if you refused this sign upon yourself. It's tantamount to saying, God, I don't want to be associated with you. I don't want to be related to you. I don't want to belong to you. Now, we discussed last week, as you already know, that God's purpose in this sign wasn't the sign itself. The signs always point beyond themselves to a reality. The reality that it points to is a circumcision of the heart. What was meant by the cutting away of the flesh was a clear picture to the people of God that they needed to be cut away from the things of this world, branded and marked out as belonging to God. But as is often the case, not just with the Jewish people, but for many who call themselves Christian, what is often the case is we stop at the sign. We stop at the externals. We start at the outward displays of religion and we fail to come all the way to the real. As a matter of fact, the Jewish people just like many professing Christians today, they found themselves boastful and prideful about the sign. That's why they called themselves the circumcision while calling the others the uncircumcision. But despite their faithlessness, God has proven faithful. What Paul says in Romans 3.3, so what if some were unfaithful? This is still a gift. God's purposes and his plans and this gift, this sign that he had given to his people. It is not nullified by the faithlessness of some men any more than baptism is nullified as a gift from God just because some undergo it and then continue to walk like the world. Incredible gift to have been born into a people who carry this mark, this sign, even this sign made by hands, even this sign in the flesh. It's a gift from God. I'd remind you that when Paul and Barnabas went to Jerusalem to argue that these Gentile folks who wanted to come into the household of God, these Gentile folks who wanted to be counted amongst the believers, they didn't need to undergo the circumcision. They didn't argue this by saying that circumcision in and of itself were bad or had failed or were not in fact, was not in fact a thing that God had in that previous dispensation called his people to do, demanded of his people. So Apostle Paul is telling us we need to remember you need to remember that hostility that once existed between Jew and Gentile, but you also need to remember the real barriers that existed between you and the household, the people of God. Therefore, remember that one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the hands by made in the flesh by hands. Again, he's pointing us beyond just the outward signs of religion. Although they did lack that. They lacked the outward mark. They they lack the sign in the flesh, and that was a real lack. But lest we believe that this is purely superficial, lest we believe that all he is saying is, just forget about it, it wasn't a real deal. It was just just a, a prideful thing. It was just a division that the Jews created against the Gentiles. Lest we fall for that, he carries us further and he shows us. He expounds upon that great barrier that existed between us and the household of God. True barriers that existed between us in this great redemption that Paul has gone on and on about here. He's speaking to us as ones who were once far off. Not just far off like the rest of creation, like the rest of humanity. We were in fact far off, dead in our sins. But he's talking about something positionally. As people who were not Jews, who were not of Israel, 
He's saying you need to remember where you were positionally as you were far off from God. As I told you last week, he gives us five things. He lists for us five things that are true. Five markers of what it meant for us as Gentiles to be far off from God. Number one, we are separated from Christ. Number two, we were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. Number three, we're strangers to the covenants of promise. Number four, we had no hope. And number five, we were without God in the world. Now the reality is, that none of these things would be a matter of great concern while we were once far off. It's, it's not as though while we were far off, we were clamoring to belong to Israel. While we were far off, we were desperate to lay hold of the promises of God. The reality is that while we were far off, we assumed we were all right with God. Not knowing that we were far off or we kept ourselves so busy. The enemy kept us so wrapped up in the activities of the world, maybe even the activities of religion, that we gave no thought to the fact that we might be far off, that we might be alienated, that we might be separated, that we might be cut off from the people of God. We would have given very little thought to any one of these five hurdles except one, without hope. That's a universal language, the language of hope. The need of men to have hope. And he's saying here, the Apostle Paul is saying, you were without hope, having no hope. Is there anything more tragic for a man to say than that he is hopeless? Anytime we walk through difficult seasons with our brothers or our sisters or our own children, we find ourselves constantly trying to show them some glimmer of hope. Because we know that once hope goes Basically, everything else is gone along with it. Life becomes oftentimes not worth living in the eyes of the man who is hopeless. Such an awful thing, having no expectations for tomorrow. No thoughts that things might improve. No confidence that salvation is coming. No prospects for an improved future whatsoever. That's what hope is. Hope is looking forward that things aren't always going to be the way that they are. Things are going to improve. They're going to improve and move forward for the better. But instead, a hopeless state is dark and desperate and sad. So he's saying that you were once hopeless without hope. But the reality is all the things that I've just spoken about with regards to hope, that only speaks to one side of hope. The, the, the word hope, it can really be used in two different ways. It can be used of it can be used of a subjective emotion and a feeling. But it can also be used of an objective truth. The grounds, the thing that you're placing that hope upon. See, when it comes to subjective feelings and emotions, we know that feelings lie and that our hearts lie and that our own minds can get confused. That oftentimes we can feel hopeless when we should have great hope. We can feel that all hope is lost. The Apostle Paul, this is a... This is a, a, uh, this is a physical and earthly picture, but the reality holds true. I want you to think about the Apostle Paul when he and the others were setting sail for Rome. And you remember the, the great storm had come upon them. And it says in Acts 27, 20, that when neither sun nor star appeared for many days and no small tempest lay, tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. The people gave up 
hope. They let loose of hope. Things were hopeless, and yet none of them died. Because God had promised that he was going to sustain them. But because of God, despite their hopelessness, all hope was not actually lost. The, the flip side of this, of course, is that people can also hope in things that prove to be utterly hopeless. The books of wisdom are constantly calling us not to place our hope in futile things, not to place our hope in riches or wealth or in our own popularity or name. Calling us not to place our hope in things that are going to prove to not offer much when the time comes. Proverbs eleven seven says that when the wicked dies, his hope dies with him. Some of the most hopeful people that we meet some of the most upbeat people that we meet, some of the people that seem to be so filled with confidence that tomorrow is going to be a brighter day. They're some of the people with the, the weakest grounding for hope. Their hope will prove futile in the end. Their hope will perish with them in the end. And yet, isn't that the mantra of this day? You just got to believe. You just got to believe. You just got to have hope. You just got to have faith. You just got to look forward. And then you ask them, well, based on what? What's your hope grounded on? Sunshine and rainbows and unicorns? There's some people I look to and think you should feel hopeless because you're without hope. I read one man say this week that hope without fulfillment is simply delusion. You see, we become a society that we, we admire people that can generate their own hope. Again, with no grounding, no basis in reality, nothing beyond themselves to cause them to hope. We look to people and we act as though this was an admirable trait. Men that just have hope for the sake of hope. But scripture tells us, no, that that's a man to be pitied. You remember the apostle Paul in the 15th chapter, the letter to the Corinthians. He's talking about the resurrection of Christ Jesus, a thing in which we can place our hope. A reality that has come to pass. A grounding of, of hope that will never let us down. But what does he say? To be clear, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, then we are most of all people to be pitied. He's saying, if the basis of our hope, Christ Jesus, proves to be a lie, you should pity us more than all the rest of the world. But how many men look to us and they say, look, I'm not a Christian. I'm not a religious man, but I admire you for your faith. I admire you that you hope in something. We need to look at those people and say, no, if what we hope in is a lie, then you should pity me. But if what I hope in is true, then you, my friend, are hopeless. So what matters most is not the feelings of hope. What matters most is the object of our hope. Until we set our hope on the proper object, the feelings are meaningless. Now, the Apostle Paul has already spoken to some degree about this. Remember when he was praying on behalf of the church in the first chapter, Ephesians 1.18, he says that he wishes or he prays, excuse me, that the eyes of our heart might be enlightened to know the hope to which he has called us. He wants us to see this hope. Peter says in his first letter that it's a living hope in Christ Jesus. Paul says in Colossians that it's a hope laid, us, laid up for us in heaven. That's why he can say that this is a hope that it's grounded in reality, a hope that is grounded in Christ, a hope that is stored up for us in heaven. Even now, therefore, in Philippians 1.20, he says, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed. This isn't a, this isn't a fanciful wish. This isn't a hope for the sake of hope. This is the kind of hope that will not allow you to be ashamed. 
that will not leave you empty in the end. And what Paul is saying here to the Gentiles is, no matter what you once felt like, no matter what your eyes told you, no matter what the people around you led you to believe, you had no hope. Having no hope and without God in the world. You must see the way those two things go together. That our hope in all things is being with God. Job 27, 8, he says, For what is the hope of the godless when God cuts him off? To be cut off from God is to be utterly hopeless. And he's saying, remember that you Gentiles were once without hope and without God in the world. Now let's look together at the way that he expounds on that. He begins that we were separated from Christ. Now, if you're, if you're being thoughtful, if you've read ahead and you're, you're really being, being read ahead previously in the week and you've already started formulating some thoughts about this text and you read these words that these Gentiles were once separated from Christ, the question that probably comes to your mind is, isn't this the case for everyone, both Jew and Gentile? Isn't this the case of everyone before what we read in verse 5, God made us alive together with Christ? Weren't they all once separated from Christ? And beyond that, don't these realities that the Apostle Paul seems to be talking about here, don't they appear to be Old Testament realities? He's speaking about the physical circumcision and the place that it played in the Old Covenant. He's talking about God's calling of a specific people to himself. A specific nation that he worked amongst, a chosen nation. He's speaking about the covenants of promise, pointing back surely to Father Abraham. So it seems to me as though he's talking about things that happened in a time before the advent of Christ. He's talking about before the time in which Christ came. God the Son came in the flesh, came in the likeness of men. So isn't it obviously true that before Christ came, we were all separated from Christ? whether Jew or Gentile. So what's he talking about here when he says, specifically of you Gentiles, not of the whole of mankind, but of you Gentiles, you were once separated from Christ. Well, if you were here a few weeks ago, you remember, I didn't camp out on it for long, but you remember that I made a point to you then that we must never seek to unhitch or separate our understanding of the New Testament from the Old. We all want to do this. I can tell you as a preacher and a teacher, particularly one that spent much of, my, much of my adult life taking this word and teaching it to children, it can become very easy to take these Old Testament stories and turn them into only that, stories. Stories of morality, stories of the triumph of good over evil, warnings against disobedience to God. Stories about how when you face giants of your own in your life, that God will help you overcome those giants if you'll just be faithful in him. It's very easy to take the Old Testament and turn it into something completely detached from the new, completely detached from the gospel and the coming kingdom in Christ Jesus. In addition to this, we've got to be very careful that we don't ever treat this era that we live in, this church era, this era since the first coming of Christ as we await the second coming of Christ, that we don't treat it as some type of a parenthesis, some type of an intrusion into God's program for Israel. And so we have, God gave some literal promises to the people of Israel in the first half. And he's going to fulfill those at the very end of the book and then everything in between, this is just some alternate plan, some plan B. Something separate and different. He tried plan A with the people of Israel, but it didn't take. 
And so he moved on to plan B with the Gentiles before he returns to what he was originally doing. We've got to see. We have to pray that God would give us eyes to see the, the unchanging and the uniform nature of his redemptive work. The way in which he's been working from eternity past into eternity future to accomplish the same thing. The redemption of a peculiar people. He had planned it before the foundation of the world. And then we see it first promised where? In Genesis 3.15, right there in the beginning with the fall of man. God is right there. Coincidentally, it's promised to us. It's promised to the first man and to his wife as they overhear it. As he speaks a curse upon the serpent saying that the offspring of woman will come. He will crush your head and you will bruise his heel. That all that we see working its way out throughout the Old Testament is God's revealing, his unveiling, his foreshadowing of how he's going to accomplish this promise. How he's going to bring this plan to pass all throughout the Old Testament. What do we see? God revealing something truthful about himself. And what is it? I am a redeemer. I am a savior. I am a rescuer. I'm a God who works on behalf of a people that I have called unto myself. So this is, at the heart of it all, what he does in the coming of Christ Jesus. All of this pointing forward to him. All of this in the sending of his son to take upon himself flesh. This is God redeeming his people by the life and the death and the burial and the resurrection and the reign of Christ Jesus our Lord. It was how he accomplished this promise. In the coming of his beloved son, true Israel, greater David's greater son. You see the connection. You must always see the connection running through the Old Testament onto the new and off into eternity. That everything we see in the Old Testament, everything that God revealed to Israel in the law and the prophets, in his redemptive work, that all of it was done with an eye, with a signal, with a pointer towards Christ. Christ was not plan B. This was always what he was working out. And we must learn to read our Bibles this way. Now there's another ditch over here. There's a ditch of allegory over here where we try to take every single piece of what God did in redemptive history and force some spiritual meaning onto it that wasn't there. And we also must take great care that we don't force upon the Old Testament writers thoughts and words and ideas and understandings that there's no way they possibly could have had. But as we read this on this side of the cross and we look backwards and we realize those things that were hidden in plain sight. That as Moses writes to us the story of Joseph being taken into exile. This story of Joseph's faithfulness. This story of how God used Joseph to save his people. As we see this story, we recognize Moses didn't have it all laid out before him as he wrote this down. He saw hints. He saw shadows. He saw pictures. He saw God the Savior. But carried along by the Holy Spirit, as God was writing this same story all the way through, we can now look back, like at the end of a great mystery novel or a, or a book, a, a movie of some sort, Sixth Sense, right? You get to the end of the movie, you look back and you go, now I see it. That must be the way we read the Old Testament. It must be the way we understand the whole of God's word. Now, Paul was very concerned with this. He speaks a lot about this. He points towards this quite a bit in his letter to the Galatians. And in Galatians 3, verse 8, he says that the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. That the gospel was preached to Abraham beforehand. Was the scripture there standing behind Abraham? 
saying, Abraham, the Son of God's going to take upon himself flesh, and Pilate's going to hand him over, and he will be crucified. But three days later, he will rise again, and then he will ascend to the right hand of his Father. No. How was the gospel preached to him? He says, in you shall all the nations be blessed. The seeds, the shadows, the signs, the pictures. The gospel was preached to Abraham. Galatians 3.23, actually beginning in verse 22, says that scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. The law was our guardian as we were imprisoned under sin. The law was our guardian carrying us forward to Christ. Acts 13, 32, Paul says that we bring you good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us and he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus from the dead. All that was given, the law, the prophets, the temple, the priests, the sacrifices, everything that was given to the people of God in the Old Testament, it was meant to lead men, to drive men, to point men, to bring them forward to the expectation of a Savior. Pictures and patterns of a God who saves. And we see this playing out in the lives of some Old Testament saints. You remember at Christmas time, we talked about Simeon and Anna. What does the scripture tell us? Luke's gospel says that Simeon was waiting for the consolation of Israel. Anna was waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. That to those who had eyes to see and ears to hear, they came to these promises, they came to these shadows, and they saw beyond to something greater that had to come. Salvation from outside themselves, surely from God, that had to come. So also... As we see after the coming of Christ Jesus in that same gospel, in Luke's gospel, you remember that after the resurrection, Jesus was walking along the road to Emmaus. He comes along these men who are just despondent because they thought the hope of Israel, the redemption of Jerusalem, they thought the hope of God's people had come, but now the one was dead. And what did Jesus do? Did he write them some new letter? Did he lay out some new theological treatise? No, he began with Moses and all the prophets and he interpreted to them and all the scriptures things concerning himself. Wasn't this the pattern for Paul and Peter and Stephen? Every time they went and they proclaimed the gospel, they pointed back to Father Abraham. They pointed back to the promises that God had made to his people in the Old Testament and showed them. And now they've come. There were minor fulfillments. There are pictures of fulfillment, but the ultimate fulfillment has come in Christ Jesus. That's why Jesus says, for if you believed Moses, you would have believed me, for Moses wrote of me. You know those five books that you've been reading? The law. Yes, even the cleanliness laws. And the temple, and the priests, and the sacrifice, and the parting of the Red Sea, and the walking through the wilderness, and the raising of a serpent upon a pole? Me. It was all me. He was showing me you, me. And now I've come. And so what we might say then, if that's the picture, that's the picture of how Christ was there all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout God's redemptive working and revealing with his people. Then what it seems to me the Apostle Paul is saying here is something along the lines of these Gentiles who were on the outside, they didn't have these patterns. They didn't have these pictures. They didn't have the things that were meant to build the expectation and the anticipation of a savior. They weren't looking forward to a promised Messiah. 
That's what Christ means, the anointed one, the Messiah. They had no one speaking this truth to them, revealing this truth to them through pictures and through words in a way that would build in their heart this expectation that Simeon and Anna had, the Christ is coming, salvation is coming, a Messiah is coming. They had none of the history of the judges. What do we talk about on Sunday night as we work together? This is my weekly reminder. You should be here on Sunday night. It's top shelf stuff. Because the people of God are gathering and worshiping. But as we work through the book of Judges, we're always seeing these pictures, these reminders. There was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in its own eyes. What's the picture there? People will stop doing what is right in their own eyes and these problems that we're seeing will go away when there is a king in Israel. King David came. Did he solve the problems? No, because there's got to be a greater king. Christ Jesus is that king. They didn't have that. They didn't have that history. They didn't have those promises. They didn't have those pictures. They were outside. So they were without Christ. Dead in sin, just like the rest of mankind, without any expectation that someone was going to come and save them from that deadness. That's one. Number two. They were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. And you see how these, now you see how these are so interconnected. A commonwealth is just an identifiable community of people. Now, in a very real sense, the whole of humanity is alienated from God in Adam. Dead in our sins, separated from God, at enmity with God. And God owed no one anything further. He promised there and. Genesis 3.15, unmerited promise, demerited promise, nothing but God's mercy and his grace. He promised that he was going to raise up a seed of the woman who was going to do battle with the seed of the serpent, that someday the seed of the woman would crush the seed of the serpent, crush the head of the serpent. But he owed no one anything further. And yet, as we move forward through the book, we come to a man called Abram that God called to himself. Owing nothing, owed to nothing but the sovereign grace and mercy of God. He called this man Abram to himself and he made him promises via covenant. Covenants of promise. Promised him a yet unforeseen land that he would have a great name and become a great nation. That through him all the nations of the world would be blessed. But most prominent of all these promises is I will be your God and you will be my people. And we know that God reaffirmed these promises, not only to Abraham, but to his sons, Isaac, and to Jacob, would rename Jacob Israel. You fast forward 400 years and we find God calling this great nation, calling this people, Israel, out of slavery in Egypt. He's redeeming them. Now as a true nation, not just a family, but as a true nation, Israel, he is redeeming them as his peculiar people, as his chosen people. But we see this even before his calling them out. You remember that when God came to Moses at the burning bush in Exodus 3, Exodus 3 verse 7, the Lord said to Moses, I have surely seen the affliction of my people. They're my people because I chose them in Abraham. They're my people because I made promises that do not change and do not get revoked. These are my people of all the peoples of the earth. He calls them out and we know how he speaks to them, that they're to be a treasured possession of God amongst all the peoples. They're a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. What does it mean to be a kingdom of priests? What does a priest do? They're representatives of God before man. See, that was God's plan for Adam. When he told Adam 
as one who bears his image and he's to be fruitful and multiply to fill the earth and subdue it. What he was saying was, you are to represent me to all men in all the earth. And Adam failed. He comes to this nation Israel and he says, you too are to be a kingdom of priests. You too are to be a people that represent me to all the nations of the earth. And they failed. But yet still God did not walk away from them. You remember in Genesis 33, after the failure at Mount Sinai, after the people had abandoned God and worshipped this golden calf, and God was going to destroy them, but then determined, okay, I will go with you into the promised land. You remember that Moses is calling out, just before he asked to see the glory of God, he's crying out to God, he's saying, God, for how shall it be known, if you don't go with us, how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us so that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? There was a distinct people, a chosen people, a royal people, a set-apart people, a cut-out-from-the-world people, a national people called Israel because of God's promise to Abraham. And it was clear that if you wanted access to this God called Yahweh, if you wanted to know this God who was with Israel, going with them through the wilderness, you had to come to the people of Israel. What did Ruth say to Naomi, to her mother-in-law? After the son was dead, after her husband was dead, she says, where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge. You shall be my people, excuse me, your people shall be my people, and your God, my God. She knew I can't have one without the other. I must come and belong to the people of Israel in order to belong to Israel's God. And what Paul is saying here is that you were alienated. You were cut off. You were foreigners. Now, Gentiles would have known this very clearly. Even those who became God-fearers, even those Gentiles that had some interest in Yahweh, that had some interest in the God of Israel, there would have been visible signs, not only in their flesh and the circumcision, but I want you to think about the temple complex. We talked about this during our time in Mark's gospel as Jesus goes through and he cleans out the temple as he's flipping over the tables and he's chasing out those who buy and sell. I told you then that as best I can tell, he wasn't in, we know he wasn't in the Holy of Holies or he wasn't in the court of the priests, that there was one large court that goes around the entire outside of the temple complex, something like 35 acres worth of land. And that this was called the court of the Gentiles unclean Gentiles, uncircumcised Gentiles. This is a place where they could come, the nations could come and pray to God. Now just inside the court of Gentiles was the court of Israel. Separating the two courts, coincidentally, is the gate called Beautiful. You know this story. But archaeologists and historians have now found for us some signs that they believe would have been there on that gate and gates like it that you would have had to pass through to come from the court of Gentiles into the court of Israel. And the sign read like this, no foreigner is to go beyond this balustrade and the plaza of the temple zone. Whoever is caught doing so, whoever is caught going through this gate, Whatever foreigner is caught coming into the court of Israel, whatever foreigner is caught trying to come closer to God, whoever is caught doing so will have himself to blame for his death, which is sure to follow. You walk through this gate, you'll be dead and it's your fault because you should have known. You should have known to have God is to be of Israel. To have Yahweh is to belong to Israel. And you remember the, the scene in Acts um, 
in Acts. Somewhere after 19, 20 or something, probably 21, where, um, where there's this uproar because some, some men had seen um, Paul with Trophimus. Is that the guy's name? Right? They'd seen him with this Gentile. They'd seen him with this non-Jew. And they assumed that Paul had brought him into the proper temple complex. And there was an uproar, rightful uproar. You don't take this man into this place. And so the Gentiles, they would have always had this visible sign, these pictures, this physical separation reminding them, Yahweh's not your God. You don't belong to the nation of Israel. You're cut off, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, lacking all the benefits of citizenship. You can live in a land and not have, used to be the case. You can live in a land, if you weren't a citizen, you didn't get all the benefits of citizenship. There are certain things that didn't belong to you. Now, of course, we know that there were some Israelites who lived in Israel, who were proper citizens of Israel, who had the marks in their flesh, who could go right into the temple complex, maybe even some high priests that could go into the Holy of Holies who completely missed out on the promises of God because their hearts were not right. But that does not change the fact that those Gentiles were further removed. They were further off. Now, I've got to make something clear at this point. You've got to hear me tell you this doesn't mean they were any harder to save. I spent quite a bit of time in this second chapter of Ephesians making clear to you, it takes the power of God to make a Christian. The little church boy and girl that grew up in church, hearing the stories, memorizing the scripture, sitting through hour-long sermons, having their mother and father pray over them, it takes the same power of God that raised Christ from the dead to make him a Christian. There are no easy conversions and hard conversions. But the fact of the matter is, God was not working amongst them. He was not speaking amongst them. He was not giving them the very oracles by which they could have faith in the promises of God. Number three, I need to speed up here. Number three, because they were alienated from the commonwealth of God, they were also strangers to the covenants of promise. Now, again, this whole thing finds its grounding back in Genesis 3.15, but it began to really take shape as we look to Father Abraham. And in Genesis 17.7, he says, I will establish my covenant between me and you, your offspring after you, through their generations as an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. The promise that he would be their God was to the offspring of Abraham, to the generations that came after him. And we see then further unveilings of this in Moses and in David and then even in the new covenant. We talk often about the newness of the new covenant and the beauty of the new covenant and the greater promises and the greater mediator and the, the blessings that come in this new covenant. But I think what sometimes gets missed is the way in which God speaks of this covenant. He says in Jeremiah 31, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I shall make a new covenant. We say, praise be to God that we are in the new covenant. Praise be to God that the new covenant promises have come. The law written upon our heart. The heart of stone removed and the heart of flesh given to us. His spirit put within us. Every one of us knowing God. Praise God that the new covenant has come. Listen to how he says it. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Even the new covenant was promised to the people of Israel, to the people of Judah, to the offspring of Abraham. Now again, I tell you, these promises would have still meant very little to those who were still yet far off. 
those who had not been brought near. And yet, what a truly great advantage it is to belong to the people of Israel. You remember, in Romans chapter 9, we almost find kind of the, uh, the inverse statement to what, he's, to what he's saying right here. Right here he's talking about the far-offness and all the disadvantages of the Gentiles. In Romans 9, at the very beginning of that chapter, Paul is heartbroken over the lostness of Israel, and he's speaking to all the advantages that they had. He says, verse 4, they are the Israelites. The Jews are the Israelites. Now let me sum up all that belongs to them as the Israelites. And to them belong the adoption. Wasn't it of them that he says in Hosea 11, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. He called them his son, his adopted son, Israel. So he says to them belong the adoption, the glory was not the glory of God with them in the wilderness? Did it not come and reside within the tabernacle? Had they not beheld the glory of God? The covenants of promise, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. These are all the great benefits of being an Israelite of being an offspring of Abraham, of being Jewish. This is why even when Christ Jesus has ascended to the right hand of the Father and he sent his Holy Spirit and the church age proper has really begun, this is why every time that gospel went and God redeemed those outside the nation of Israel, there had to be these tremendous signs, the speaking of tongues or the prophesying or these outward, visible, tangible, seeable, hearable signs to make clear, yes, they too, the Gentiles, now have a place in these promises. They have a place amongst the people in the household of God. Because prior to this, these Gentiles were at that time without hope and without God in the world. Hopeless. But the hopelessness, again I say, comes because they were without God. Men placed their hope in all kinds of things that proved to be utterly hopeless. But these who were far off in their Gentileness, in their separation... They were hopeless, whether they knew they were hopeless or not, because they were without God. The word there for without God is atheos, where we get our word atheist from. Now, it can simply mean, as we use the word atheist today, you have no thoughts of God. You don't believe there is a God. You have no relationship to anyone that you would call God or creator or master. Now, we know for the Gentiles, at least the Gentiles of Ephesus, I would argue most people you know are not true atheists. Maybe agnostics, there is some God, but he can't be known, he can't be understood, he can't be related to. We can't know for sure that any one group is right. That's where most men tend to fall, I would say. But we see for the people of Ephesus, the Gentiles of Ephesus, they weren't atheists by any stretch of the imagination. They worshipped Artemis, Diana, greatest Artemis of the Ephesians, the, the great temple that was there. This is the whole picture that we see, the scene that we see unraveling in Acts 19 as Paul has gone there. He, he has threatened their God and they believe, just like the Philistines believed with Dagon, they believed their God needed defending. So they had a God. They weren't atheists proper, but they were without God, the one true God, the living God, the God that can bring hope. They were without God. Paul says in Galatians 4.8, Formerly, when you did not know God, you were enslaved to those who by nature are not gods. But now you have come to know God, or rather, 
to be known by God. To be without God is to be hopeless. More than this, to not know God or to not have God know you. That's utter hopelessness. It's to be in the creation and not know the creator. It's to enjoy his gifts and not know him as the giver. It's to have nothing greater to look forward to. Whatever good things you receive in this life, that's all there's going to be. So you better enjoy it. You better eat and drink for tomorrow you die and you will find this God standing against you in judgment. And we know that he was their God. The God of the Jews. Not to the Gentiles. What did he say in Amos 3, 2? You only have I known, speaking of the Jewish people, of Israel. You only have I known of all the families of the earth. Now, does this mean that God was unaware of the other families? He had no clue about Ishmael's family? He had no clue of the other peoples that were out there? Of course, he knew them. And he provided for them. And he was good to them. But this is an intimate love, a saving love, a redeeming love that he had only with them. Again, I say in the promise of the new covenant, he says in Jeremiah 31, 34, no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. This is one of the things I submit to you that makes the new covenant a better covenant, that everyone within this covenant knows the Lord. So to know God, to be known by God is to have everything. Remember David said in Psalm 27, 10, my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord has taken me in. What were the words we just sang earlier? That's Psalm 34, right? Taste and see, this poor man cried and the Lord heard me. He saved me from all my fears or something like this. How often as we've worked on Wednesday nights through the Psalms do we find David saying, I've got no hope but God. God, you are my refuge. You are my strength. You are my rock. You are my hope. The whole world has turned against me. My father and my mother, they have abandoned me. But I have God. And that's more than enough. Once you think about Paul at the very end of his earthly ministries, he's speaking to, he's speaking to uh, Timothy in 2 Timothy. He's saying, he, he lists this long list of all the people that have abandoned him. For various reasons, some for sin, some just ministry has called them away. But what does he say? The Lord only stood by me on that day and delivered me. The Lord only stood by me on that day. He's not lamenting saying all I had was the Lord. He was saying the Lord only and that's all I need. Give me the Lord. He's saying to these people, you are without hope because you are without God. You were alienated. You were strangers to the promises that God had made to be a God to a people, for them to be his people and him to be their God, because you were outside of Israel. You did not even have the oracles, the word of God, to cause you to hope for a Savior to come from heaven, to cause you to look forward in anticipation to the anointed one, to the Messiah. You were hopeless and didn't even know you were hopeless. You were hopeless and didn't even know where to turn for hope. Having only the general revelation of God that's spoken about in Romans 1. It wasn't that they knew nothing of God. All man knows of God, but they suppressed that truth. The truth that can be known about his power and his divine attributes and something of his moral law. You knew this, but that was only enough to leave you without excuse and damned forever. You see how much greater then is the position of Israel to have the oracles of God and all these signs and all these pictures and all these promises. 
What Paul is saying here is you were once outside and God would have been absolutely within his right to leave you on the outside. And I don't think we feel the weight of this because we have become so twisted in our understanding of the grace of God. Number one, because we live in this age of grace, perhaps we believe that grace is a thing that God owes his people. I've, you've heard me give the faulty quote before that you'll often hear from men. Of, of course God forgives, that's his job. Or we have fallen for the lie that if God extends grace to any one person, he owes it to all. That's not grace. For grace to be grace, it must be God's to give and withhold freely as he sees fit. If God had bestowed this grace upon Israel, he did not owe it to the Gentiles. But I've got to give you some good news. So verse 13 to set the stage for next week. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That now in Christ Jesus, I don't want to preach next week's sermon before we get there, but he is true Israel. He is the greater son of David. He is the second Adam. He is all that the Old Testament pointed forward to. Beloved, you do have to belong to Israel to be saved. The true Israel of God. So that in him, all those who have placed their faith in him by the blood of Christ, we have been brought near. Galatians 3.26, for in Christ Jesus, you, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. You want those promises? You don't want to be far off any longer? You want to be God's people and for him to be your God? You want to belong to Abraham? Come to Christ. Fly to Christ. Run to Christ. And in him you will find, for we both, this is verse 18, for through Christ we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. All those things that were once separated from you, that you were once separated and alienated from, they're now yours in Christ Jesus. By his grace and by his mercy and by his power, God has opened a way for hope for even we Gentiles in Christ Jesus. Again, I tell you, we take this for granted. We hear the words of Isaiah in Psalm 55, 1, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters, and he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come by wine and milk without money and without price. We've heard those words so often we don't feel the weight any longer. We don't believe the separation. It's just some words on a page. We don't believe that we were once far off. We don't believe that we were once hopeless, without hope and without God in the world. I suppose I would be remiss and a group of this size to assume that all of us have been brought near. With the coming of Christ Jesus and the opening of this door and the offer of coming to God and finding hope in God is not the guarantee that all we Gentiles have come in. But it is an offer. And it's a real offer for any who would look to Christ Jesus and find their only hope of being right with God laying hold of the promises of God. If you've not yet done this, then the reality is you are without hope. 
you are still alienated from the household of God. But praise God that he has seen fit to bring you into a place like this where you could hear this gospel message. I speak specifically to you children, but of course I would be a fool to believe that every adult in this room knows Christ in this way. Praise God that he saw fit to bring you to a place like this when you could hear a promise of hope like this. While there's still breath in your lungs, while there's still blood pumping through your body, that you could turn to Christ Jesus, trust in him, and be saved. So I'm calling you today, if you find yourself on the outside still far off from God, I'm calling on you this day to come in repentant faith to Christ Jesus and receive this hope. Father God, we praise you and we thank you. We thank you that we do have a living hope in Christ Jesus our Lord. We thank you that you have not only made this way, but you have brought us in. We thank you that our redemption is secure and safe and stored in heaven for us. So Father, I pray, as I just offered, I pray now for those souls, whether they be very well aware of their separation from you or whether they're deceived, I pray that you would reveal the truth of their soul and that you would save them. You would call them to life. It calls them to turn and hope in Christ and him alone. For those of us who are walking with you now, we praise you and we thank you for this gift. We pray that we would leave this place even further strengthened and filled with hope as a result of this word that you have preached to us. Father, we love you, trust you, and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.